Welcome to Cases and Controversies, a Supreme Court podcast by Bloomberg Law. I'm Kimberly Robinson. And I'm Lydia Wheeler. Last week, the U.S. Supreme Court wrapped up a term marked by massive shifts in the law of abortion and guns, continued movement towards robust protections for religious freedoms and the dismantling of the so-called administrative state, and remarkable public pressure punctuated by a once unthinkable leak of a draft opinion and an attempt on one of the justices' lives. We've all had a week to reflect on what that means now and for the future. And to help us put into perspective the historic nature of the just completed term, we have University of Virginia law professor A.E. Dick Howard, who is an expert on constitutional law and the Supreme Court as an institution. He also clerked for Justice Hugo Black. So let's go to our conversation now. So I wanted to start our conversation with some of the controversial topics that the justices covered this term. Everything from abortion to guns to religion to climate change. And I'm wondering, has there ever been a term that's seen so many cases that tackle these controversial issues and that makes such sweeping changes to the law? You'd have to go back pretty far to find any term like the one that's just ended. It has indeed been a remarkable, breathtaking term. You'd have to go back probably 60 years or so to the days of the war in court in the mid-1960s, where the Warren Court, in a very muscular fashion, set out to basically redraw the face of American politics, Uh, decisions laying down one person, one vote in legislative apportionment, um, civil rights opinions, where they upheld the Civil Rights Act of 1964, uh, the nationalization of criminal procedure, Uh, applying the Bill of Rights to the states by way of the 14th Amendment, cases like um, Gideon versus Wainwright, for example, the right to counsel. And uh, one should not overlook um, the origins of the right of personal privacy or autonomy. That was Griswold versus Connecticut, the uh, birth control case, which actually set the court on the road, road, which um, took them to Roe versus Wade in 1973. So if you look back at that era, they... It was pretty breathtaking as well. But in the intervening half century, we I don't think we've seen um, any term that comes close to the one we just saw. Yeah. And it, it seems like there's been more public outrage and backlash against the court. I mean, there was a guy who uh, allegedly plotted to assassinate Justice Brett Kavanaugh, um, even showed up at his house in the middle of the night with a weapon. Have we ever seen like something like that? Has there ever been an assassination attempt on a, on a sitting Supreme Court justice? I don't recall an assassination attempt, but um, I do remember the impeach Earl Warren signs that appeared all over the South after Brown versus Board of Education in 1954. The, the court has certainly been uh, the, the cause of outrage of a number of groups over the years. I think of massive resistance to Brown. I think of um, Richard Nixon's 1968 presidential campaign where he went around the country a law and order campaign attacking the Supreme Court, promising to change it. Um, I think of the Bork hearings in 1987, where uh, famously uh, Ted Kennedy's letter about what Robert Bork's America would look like. Um, I think of Bush versus Gore in 2000, which in which the court basically decided who the next president would be. So there have been a number of moments where the public opinion was stirred mightily by what the court did. Um, and we obviously can see that again as a result of this term. 
So one thing we've seen the justices do lately is go on what I like to call a PR campaign where they urge the the public not to view the the justices as just uh, politicians in robes. And I wonder in part if you know, that's sort of been rejected, I think, by the public, as the polls indicate. And I wonder if that's partly because of the lopsided ideological division that is currently on the court, uh, where we have a 6-3 conservative majority. Have we ever had a court that's been so dominated uh, by one party's nominees? I don't think there has been any precedent for that, because if you look back over recent decades, going back into the 20th century, um it was not possible to line up every justice with the ideological preferences of the president to put that justice on the court. You had justices who came to the court, I think of David Souter, for example, or Harry Blackman or some other justices who, once they settled in on the court, drifted from one side to the other. It was not easy to pigeonhole the justices. That's what's changed. I mean, now you could predict the in general, the votes of any particular justice by knowing something about the president who put that justice on on the court. And that sort of marked, we don't have the centrist justices like uh, Sandra Day O'Connor, Anthony Kennedy, people like that who often held the balance of power in five to four cases. Uh, That's history. Now we have this six to three ideological split so clear that it's not surprising that members of the public tend to see the court in uh, political terms. That's really interesting. Um, you know, we had this a president, you know, under uh, former President Donald Trump, that he was able to appoint three justices um, in just four years. Has there ever been a term where a president has been able to have such an impact on the court like that and be able to get so many justices and so many seats filled on one court? Well, I guess you could say that President Franklin Roosevelt changed the face of the court with his appointees. He put, but he put, he put eight justices on the court, but then he was president into his fourth term. So it was spread out over a very long period of time. Richard Nixon um, had the chance to put four justices on the court in about two and a half years, not even the completion of his first term. And he thought he would change the face of the court, but those justices turned out to be not all marching in, in lockstep to, uh, to Nixon's hopes. I think Reagan's appointees began the process of building a conservative block, but it took years to build. It took, oh, Rehnquist became just chief justice in 1986. Scalia came to the court. Um, justice Thomas was added in 1991. Then Roberts became chief justice. Alito came on the court, I think, in 2005. And so they were building a step at a time, but suddenly Trump gets the chance to put three justices on the court, thanks in good part to the um, machinations of Mitch McConnell in the Senate, but three on the court in a very short period of time. And that was what finally produced what clearly now is a conservative working majority. And so with that conservative majority, there's been a lot of talk about changing the makeup of the court, expanding it or adding term limits. Um, Have there been sort of these institutional um, calls for institutional change in the past? And how did the court deal with that? How did the public and the other branches kind of deal with that? Those questions? The most famous example of a president trying to change the court was the so-called court-packing plan that took place during Roosevelt's time back in the 1930s. But there was such explosive reaction to that. That plan died. It was never it was never adopted. 
never in fact put into formal uh, position. And but it is thought historians think that that the fact that that proposal was being mooted um, resulted in the so-called switch in time that saved nine when the Supreme Court in 1937 backed off from opposing the New Deal and began to uphold uh, Roosevelt's measures. So the the furor over that that was it left a bad taste in so many mouths that 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 gives a taint to proposals even as late as today to actually effect structural changes in the court. Um, the Congress court, of course, it could by legislation change the number of justices. Uh, it was it's changed over the years. It was uh, fewer than nine at one time back in the 19th century, but we've settled into this pattern of 150 years of which nine justices has been seen as the norm. So I don't think structural proposals proposals are going to go anywhere, despite the fact that when you look around the world at the high courts of most of the other developed democracies, uh, term limits or age limits or staggered appointments or the like are very common. We're very much an outlier, but we're likely to remain that way. Uh, that's very interesting. And uh, Senator Susan Collins, um, you know, after the abortion ruling this term, suggested that she was misled by Justice Brett Kavanaugh during the confirmation hearings. Um, and I was curious if those private meetings that lawmakers have with nominees to the Supreme Court uh, are valuable anymore. And if there is a way that the confirmation process could change to kind of improve the public's perception and view of the court. Well, I don't think the um, private hearings with senators or, in fact, the public uh, confirmation hearings themselves have had any value for, for a couple of decades now. Uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg perfected the technique of being able to say, oh, I can't answer that question because that might come before the court. Or if the question were more general, she'd be able to say, oh, that's that's too abstract. That doesn't. I, we do cases and controversies. So she managed to say basically nothing of lasting importance. And that's been the practice of nominees. They do that same kind of shuffle, and we come away knowing pretty much nothing. I have to marvel at the naivete of a senator like uh, Collins, who would assume that simply because the nominee says, oh, well, I believe in stare decisis, uh, stare decisis binds the court when they please, and when they don't please, they simply... Uh, abandon it, as they clearly did in the uh, Dodge case. The fact that Roe and its progeny has been around for almost 50 years uh, didn't ch- didn't change matters if the justice felt strongly enough about it. Right. So, you know, earlier you were talking about how I mean, one thing that's changed about the court is that the justices, are, you can kind of predict how it is they're going to vote by knowing a little bit about the president that appointed them. And I just wondered if you think that the confirmation process, while you said it has no value, I wonder if it has the effect of kind of um, making those justices more predictable. Well, I think the key to all this is that um, in the old days, and by I mean going back, say, a half a century, nominations to the court were essentially, of course, they were political. Democrats put Democrats on the court. Republicans put Republicans on the court. But the politics was more personal. When when Jack Kennedy put um, Whizzer White on the court, I don't think Kennedy cared at all what Whizzer White's judicial philosophy was. He just knew he'd been on All-American, all the rest of it. He was Kennedy's kind of guy. That's the old politics. Since really Reagan, 
of the 1980s, the rise of originalism, the rise of conservative interest law firms, the Heritage Foundation, and so forth. All all those factors combined in in the recent decades, politics in the old sense has been replaced by ideology. The president wants to know from his advisors, will this nominee, how will this person vote? Now, no public pledges are made. I mean, it may well be that Kavanaugh or Gorsuch were not asked explicitly, would you vote to overrule Roe? But by the time the nomination takes place, the president is pretty sure of how uh, his choice is going to going to behave once on the court. So, Dick, can you give us your overall impressions of this term? You know, now that we're we're done, um, and and kind of give us a sense of where you think the court is headed. Well, I think uh, this this term has been coming for several years now. Of course, the three Trump appointees nailed, nailed it down, but it's a uncommonly aggressive term. For in the early years of the Roberts court, changes were taking place. The court was indeed moving to the right, but the changes were more incremental, sort of a step at a time. I think that was the taste of Chief Justice Roberts. But now we have this six to three majority where even if Roberts is not fully on board, it doesn't matter. You still have five conservative justices. So I mean, think about the cases that came down. You've got the abortion case, outright overruling Roe versus Wade rather than simply nibbling away at it. You had the gun case from New York in which we're clearly going to see more expansion of the right to carry uh, guns in in public. Church and state cases, uh, the court is very much on course to dismantle step-by-step the um, wall of separation between church and state. The EPA case was really monumental because there, not only has the court... um, basically neuter the EPA in dealing with climate action, they're basically setting the court up to start dismantling the administrative state. It's clear that the conservative majority on this court doesn't like the administrative state in the form it's taken since the 1930s, and they're going to set out to do something about it. So I, I think we should buckle our uh, buckle up for a really rough ride. It's going to be a bumpy ride on the court, uh, starting next term with affirmative action, more on church and state, and so forth. Um, I think the, the the door is open to what will prove historically to be a significant shift in constitutional law in America. Hmm. Well, as a as a final question before we let you go, I, I wanted to ask about Chief Justice Roberts. You mentioned that even if he's not on board now, uh, the other more conservative justices can kind of uh, lead the court where they want to go. And I just wonder, you know, there's been a lot of talk about how just Chief Justice Roberts has lost control of the court, how it's not the Roberts court anymore. And I'm wondering if that's atypical. I mean, how often is it that the chief justice is really kind of um, the pivotal vote on the Supreme Court? Well, one has to recognize that even though the chief justice is the titular head of the court, the one who's the public face of the court, the chief justice's actual powers within the court are limited. He, He assigns the majority, the author of the majority opinion, when he's in the majority, otherwise the senior associate justice in the majority does, uh, the chief obviously sort of sets the pace for the court where they're meeting in the courtroom. He organizes the conference in the court, the way in which the justices decide to talk about cases which are are being argued. But uh, these are fairly formal type 
uh, powers. Otherwise, he's one vote among nine, and much turns on his powers of personal persuasion. I think Earl Warren was persuasive in the Warren court because he had such a congenial personality. He, he was a good politician. He knew how to work with the majority. Uh, contrast, for example, Warren Berger, who did not have that sort of personality. He was rather imperious and, and uh, self-important, and, and he was definitely not in charge of his court. So, so much depends on the personality and persuasive abilities of the chief, but I think Robert's ability to control this court will be clearly limited by the views, the ideology the other justices bring to their jobs. Well, he does still have the gavel, so there's that. Um, He has the gavel. (laughs) Thank you so much for joining us. This has been really helpful in trying to put this term in perspective and kind of the historic nature of uh, what just wrapped up. Thank you. Glad to be on board. Well, that was really interesting and helpful, I think, for me to kind of think about, you know, where this whole term fits in with, you know, the 200 plus years of the Supreme Court already. Absolutely. It was interesting to hear about other terms that might have been similar or able to compare to this, even though this one is pretty unprecedented. Well, Lydia, I wanted to thank you for um, filling in for Jordan while he's out on paternity leave. You've been a wonderful addition to the podcast, and I'm sure listeners will miss you. Well, I'm happy to be here and happy to come back anytime you or Jordan want to slack off. (laughs) Oh, sweet. Uh, (laughs) So we're thanking Lydia because with the term ending, we're going to take a break for cases and controversies. We'll be back before the Supreme Court's term kicks off in October. Until then, you can follow along with all the latest at news.bloomberglaw.com. When it comes to the environment, there are, let's say, a lot of moving parts. Climate change, air pollution, chemical contamination, endangered species. It's a lot. That's where Parts Per Billion comes in. Join us on the Parts Per Billion podcast every other Wednesday to sort out everything that's going on in the environment, from the courts to Congress to your backyard. Download and subscribe to Bloomberg Law's Parts Per Billion wherever you get your podcasts. And thanks for listening.